This 10 Talks podcast is a production of the 10 Words Project from WUOT-FM and the University of Tennessee College of Social Work. Hello and welcome to 10 Talks Bedtime Stories. Tonight's episode, No More Lullabies, is our last episode for Bedtime Stories, the first 10 episode season of the 10 Talks podcast. If you've tuned in before, you know that 10 Talks is a product of WUOT's 10 Words Project. 10 Words is a way of getting to know our listeners in which we ask you about what you find important. Your responses to our current question, what keeps you up at night, have inspired all 10 episodes of Bedtime Stories. But just because this is your last bedtime story with me, it doesn't mean it's the last time you can engage with us via the 10 Talks podcast. We are switching up the 10 words question and we'll be coming at you with a new season very soon. So stay tuned into WUOT to find out more. But back to our current show, No More Lullabies. Of more than 500 responses we've received, 102 came from preteens, teenagers, and young adults aged 11 to 26. Of these, 77 were related to personal fears, anxieties, and stressors. Some of these were related to school, from a 19-year-old female saying she's stressing about what to study in college, to two teenagers, 16 and 17, who are both losing sleep worrying about volleyball tryouts. We had 11 and 12-year-olds writing about their concerns over their tests at school and fitting in, and a 19-year-old female wrote not being good enough. One 20-year-old female responded, am I a terrible person? And another wrote, do I make my boyfriend miserable? Add that to the other responses about learning to drive, family illnesses, student loan debt, and personal fears, and we can see that preteens, teenagers, and young adults have a lot more on their minds than our society sometimes believes. Especially with high schoolers, I think there's a tendency to say, oh, wait until you get out into the real world, you have no idea, and discount some of these problems, brushing them off as teen angst. And we're going to talk about that later in the show. But first, we're here with Dr. Gina Austin and Ping Guo, a University of Tennessee student. And they've both volunteered to be with us today to talk about college-age depression. According to Healthline, 44% of American college students report having symptoms of depression, but 75% of college students say they don't seek help for mental health problems. But suicide is the third leading cause of death among college students, and four out of every five college students who either contemplate or attempt suicide show clear warning signs. In fact, Stanford University has coined a term for a unique kind of depression they're seeing among their students called Duck Syndrome. The term compares students to ducks who look calm on the water, but beneath it, their feet are just paddling frantically. Dr. Austin, why would students make such an effort to appear okay when they aren't? Well, the um, drive to succeed in school and to honor uh, the goals that they set out for themselves when they entered college, there's a lot of pressure from that. I believe the article you're referring to also talked about helicopter parents that kind of hover over their children and help them, you know, instill some standards. Those standards become uh, set very high. And then when sometimes they become unrealistic and not reachable. But what that is setting a person up for is that the goals may not be realistic and they're not prepared to have a setback or failure. So when we're talking about the duck syndrome, that's about trying to appear to be perfect. So when someone's trying to, be, to appear to be perfect, 
you know, it, it's it's an unreal expectation, and perfection does not make you feel more um, accomplished. It makes you feel inadequate, actually. And, and Ping, I understand that you um, struggled a long time with kind of yeah. working on uh, this appearance of perfectionism with your academic career. Yeah, I think... Not only that, I just want to be perfect, like in everything. Is when even though I'm not perfect or, or I'm not okay, I still want to behave like oh I'm okay, I'm very happy. Is one reason from my experience is like I, I remember my parents told me that when you're not okay, if somebody asks you are you okay, you still say yeah I'm okay because they don't want to hear that you say I'm not okay. And then at the same time, another reason is um, you do want to show your good side of yourself because you want to be successful. You don't want to, you don't want people to know that. Like it's like my secrets. I just want to hide it. I can work really hard at night and then give a really good exam in the morning. And yeah. pretend not to be tired at all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, and then like, oh, I didn't really learn. I just took it very easy like that. Yeah, the Journal of Social and Clinical Psychology actually published a study um, looking at social media use, namely Facebook, and overall happiness and like students' tendencies to compare themselves to others. And people do seem to edit themselves to appear to be the very best versions of themselves online. And with the rise in what they're calling, you know, duck syndrome, it, it sounds like that self-editing is reaching over into their everyday lives. I've seen that too, and I've heard a lot too. Like they may take 100 pictures and post one, choose the best one. <laughs> yeah. And edit that one on like you can makeup or yeah. something. I mean, I'm guilty of it. I definitely, I, I mean, I don't let people just tag me in any photos. I definitely <laughs> want to see what they are. Does this make me appear to be one person? Yes. Um, I, I'll like overanalyze everything I ever post to try to sound positive and if not positive, then at least like the smart kind of cynical. <laughs> yeah, me too. You say, oh, my hair is not okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So have you have you guys experienced this with like um, any students coming in and talking about, I guess specifically, this was based off of um, a student had actually committed suicide. And just hours before she'd put a selfie on Instagram where she was just talking about um, how happy she was. And it, it just seemed completely out of the blue that people we're looking at this girl who gave gave the impression not just online, but in real life that she was doing great. And underneath she was so depressed and um, eventually took her own life. Yes, I, I think there is some recent research that does suggest that social media can increase the number of social comparisons that a user makes and reduce their happiness. So, you know, when we think about social media's influence and how it's impacting lives, you know, putting forth that uh, best representation of yourself, but not a truthful one. And it can be exhausting mm -hmm. um, at the same time to just maintain that persona. And to some extent, you know, this is not a new concept. You know, it's this has been going through the decades that when you get into college and not just peer pressure, but that uh, here again, the goals that you set that might have not been realistic um, in the sense that, yes, try to reach for uh, those goals that, and th I mean, that's the that's the whole issue is there's a lot of positive reinforcement for setting high goals and achieving those. But when it's taken to an extreme, 
such as what we're talking about here with the duck syndrome that you know it's it's putting uh, the person's life in a imbalance so that that consumes their existence then that's that's the unhealthiness we're talking about in my office when i see clients cognitive schemas are thought patterns that have certain emotions and behaviors associated with them. And one of those cognitive schemas that keeps coming up in the college population that I've been working with here at UT is perfectionism. And so an antidote to perfectionism is, while they're thinking that, that they're never good enough, is to uh, adapt some mindfulness thinking that they, they are good enough for themselves. That, what, that they might not be perfect, but they are perfect for themselves. So it requires a more realistic thinking and challenging themselves to um, relax their standards in a way that they have that more balance in their life and have more joy in their life. I think for me, um, how I understand myself is I didn't realize or I don't, I was not aware of what's going on with me. I just think, oh, it's not good enough. It's not good enough. And then when I ask myself, when I realize, oh, this is a problem, what is good enough? What is your purpose? What you really want to be? I don't even have an answer. Like, I just want to be better, I want to be better. Or I would say, I want to put myself in that situation to feel stressed, to feel depressed, to feel scared. It's not really, oh, I want to be like, a hero, I want to be super rich. I don't even have that kind of goal in my mind. If I have one, maybe I won't say that's like, um, I want to be perfect. Because I don't really know what I want to be. I don't really have a purpose. And then I have to keep like holding myself in like a corner, I would say. And then you couldn't get out of it. And that's really just... That's not perfect, I think. That's not really someone want to be perfect. Perfect should be like balanced. That's perfect. Not to be like, oh, all A in your GPA. <laughs> yeah, it's not like that, I think. At what point did you feel like you needed help? I think when I realized that, I just feel so exhausted. Like I couldn't stand it more, like that fear hold me so much I just just got me so angry like I want to get rid of it like I don't want to I want to fight with the fear like I'm afraid of doing this I'm afraid of um, facing my problems I'm afraid of just so scared I don't even know why I'm afraid why I'm scared why I'm sad but I just want to get out of that emotions I don't want them to control me anymore. And then I feel like, okay, I need to do something with it. I think it got me so angry. I don't like that feeling. And then I, won't, I don't want to stay there anymore. Was there a particular day or event or um, did you see like any kind of flyer or anything that spurred you on to go seek help? Yeah, actually, I do see people around me, like my friends, um, they also talk up, like talk to me about these things, and then 
um, we started like I started like ask them questions and then I I know oh, okay so there's a way actually you can help yourself you can read books you can talk to some professional people to help you so I started like try to find help so you had been thinking about it for a while then yeah so uh, Dr. Austin working mm -hmm. at the University of Tennessee um, about how many how many students would you say come in to um, for depression related or anxiety and depression related counseling rather than eating disorders and other things? The majority of our clients have some form of depression or anxiety. Um, one of the uh, statistics that I have about suicide is 23 percent of students at UT have reported suicidal ideation. Uh, as you mentioned, um, suicide was is the th third leading cause of death in college-age people. That doesn't mean they're all going to the university, but college-age people. Um, every 60 seconds, someone attempts a suicide, and these numbers are way too high on our campuses. Also, back to per perfectionism. I would uh, encourage your listeners that any time that they are thinking these kind of thoughts or they know someone that is judging themselves this way, to consider that um, they might need to uh, take a look at how they're evaluating themselves and being hard on themselves. Here are some perfectionistic types of thinking, statements that people say to themselves. I must be the best at most of what I do. I can't accept second best. I strive to keep almost everything in perfect order. I must look my best most of the time. I can't settle for good enough. Almost nothing I do is quite enough. I can always do better. Um, my health is suffering because I put myself under so much pressure to do well. I often sacrifice pleasure and happiness to meet my own standards. And when I make a mistake, I deserve strong criticism. These are the kind of thoughts that are going through the mind of someone who is a perfectionist. And typically how we might work in therapy with that is just like uh, Ping was talking about anger, uh, frustration, irritation, but also there's a sadness with that. So to identify the emotion that comes with those perfectionistic thoughts and just be open to those feelings without judging them and catch themselves thinking it as it's occurring. So when they're saying something like, nothing I do is good enough, I must be perfect, and some people do think, yes, I must be rich or beautiful to fit in. You know, they need to look for the pattern. You know, how often is this occurring? How much does it, is it taking up the time in their life? And then if, if they see that it's something that they could consider themselves, you know, changing, definitely come in and talk to someone. Um, the other thing about perfectionism is that it does not make you feel more capable. It makes you feel unproductive and less capable. So whatever you're trying to achieve with perfectionism, that's not the route to it. And that the beauty of having any kind of uh, experience with failure will help you meet the next challenge, which, you know, you're going to have successes and failures, and that's just the reality of life. And, it, yes, it's really sad that people... Uh, at the time in their life when they should be enjoying themselves maybe the most, it becomes such a hardship. 
So New York Magazine published a commentary, kind of like a column based off the Stanford Duck Syndrome research and said that a lot of students will sometimes come into college with depression and anxiety and just the college environment itself can exacerbate those symptoms, whether it's, you know, constantly being graded or, um, you know, drinking, partying. Uh, you see a lot of lack of sleep. And if there's anything we've learned talking um, back all the way back to episode four, actually, and this keeps coming up in our other shows, is that um, a lack of sleep can, can create a neuropsychiatric condition. Oh, yes. Or, um, mm-hmm. Namely, depression is that mm-hmm. depression can be linked directly to a lack of sleep. So, I mean, when, when you look at campuses, like, what are some of these... I guess, contributing factors that, that can exacerbate these, you know, um, emotional problems, like lacks of mental health and wellness. Well, in, internally, when you're comparing yourself to another person, you're always going to find someone that's more successful uh, or has possesses some talent that you don't. So I would encourage, the you know, the person to consider their own strengths and then capitalize on those. So that requires a shift in their thinking. That's going to, every time you compare yourself, you will find someone that has something that you don't possess. And just like you were talking about uh, social media, the comparisons on social media, uh, you're always going to see someone uh, that looks maybe happier. I mean, you really don't know what's behind uh, that picture. Uh, And then so look internally and what's going on with those thoughts leading to what kind of emotions. Uh, The other thing is that externally, you know, you surround yourself with people that uh, accept you no matter what you're doing in your life, how you're performing, so to speak. And that's really what it's all about is the self-acceptance. But are there other direct um, influencing factors than other than comparing yourselves? I mean, we mentioned alcohol and lack of sleep and stuff that occur on college campuses that are that are exacerbating like emotional conditions like depression well you might ask ping can you uh, go back in your experience and and see if there was anything that that did that for you um i think classes you know like when when we are taking classes is like the most important thing is to guide like um a very high grade right because that's like the only um, standard to judge the students who is better, who is not as good. I think maybe for if the teachers or professors who um, teach us in classes, if they can start mention more about about these, um, like you know, just make more standards. It's, I don't have to get a hundred to be good enough I don't have to you know mm, yeah I think it just like they only have one standard A B C D right Mm -hmm. that one I think make students more um, stressed yeah yeah I think uh, in my own experience I guess as an undergrad and even as a master's student it was always that that struggle of trying to, you know, keep really, really good grades. I felt like that was necessary. But I also had a job. My job's with the National Guard, but a lot of other people have jobs in other areas. And so I'm trying to maintain, you know, work. I'm trying to maintain school. I'm trying to have a social life and go out like a few nights a week and make sure I'm present in my friends' lives, you know, make sure I'm going to church and I'm trying to, you know, diet and exercise even. I was like, 
um, just really hard on myself at the time about everything from like body image to grades to like everyone's hanging out without you. And the one thing that started to, you know, fall for me was sleep. I wouldn't sleep. Like now as a, when I was a senior, I finally caught what they call senioritis and like sleep over everything was then my motto. And I noticed things stressed me out a lot less. My GPA wasn't as good, but I mean, I have noticed that I was spreading myself just way too thin. I'm probably still guilty of it. But, I mean, do you think this is a, the case with other students, just trying to put way too many eggs in one basket? Yeah, they try to compare. I think it's still compare yourself with other people you think. You want to please people. You want people to like you. Because if you don't hang out with them that often, maybe next time when they see you, they won't be that friendly. Or you see, oh, they are closer. I'm kind of mm -hmm. like further away. I think it is still you want to please people. You want to feel better about yourself through how people judge you. I think I, I, I'm the same. But um, like you said, you sleep more. I do that now too like I sleep more is the most important thing for me yeah. to sleep now that enough. I'm 23 and in grad school there's no longer such thing as an all-nighter for me I will stay up at latest midnight <laughs> and beyond that I'm like not worth it <laughs> as you get older you start to listen to your body I think more than you know your your grade mm -hmm. point average yeah. <laughs> I yeah I think that's very right just listen to your body that's what I've learned like recently like listen to your physical body not your mind, because if the body is not okay, the mind won't be okay. Also in my practice, I see people that have experienced burnout. Mm -hmm. Like Ping was saying, is listening to your body. So it has its own intelligence. And what we're finding out with no matter what kind of um, stressor or mental health condition someone's going through, uh, I work a lot with trauma, PTSD, um, we know now how important it is to get your body moving and to engage in something that maybe also has a mindful component to it. Yes, like yoga. Martial arts is wonderful. Uh, anything you can do to uh, use other components of your brain and engage the movement for your healing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. These, these depressive symptoms, like are there any statistics or have you seen any evidence in your work of them leaking over into students' um, academic lives to where they might not realize it until, like, it, it, I mean, it almost seems like a vicious cycle. Like, you don't realize, you know, you're frantically paddling until you start seeing things start to fall apart. Oh, absolutely. Um, because it's a new experience, you know. Let's say someone comes in as a freshman and they don't know they're starting to get overwhelmed, so by the spring semester... They're trying to catch up, and, you know, sometimes it's doable, and depending on what other stressors they have. So um, it, it's just, you know, at the, at the counseling center, that's a major part of also our work is to, and we call those, you know, it starts out as an adjustment situation, adjustment disorder. It's, it's a temporary thing that um, somebody can work through. Um, how it develops into depression might also be also the thinking pattern. There are three. Uh, there's something in uh, psychology uh, called learned helplessness, and this was with Dr. Martin Seligman back in the 70s when he had these famous experiments with dogs that learned how to be helpless. Um, and I guess, you know, the shorthand version is from that research, has uh, positive psychology was born from that research. 
And when I work with clients, I help them recognize three perceptual errors that come with this. When you, if you want a recipe for how to get depressed and how to stay depressed, you do these three things with your thinking. You believe that that your problems are all about you. You believe that that your problems are going to be permanent. You can never change them. And that your problems extend to all areas of your life. Personalization, permanence, and pervasiveness. And so if, if anybody listening wants to um, think about how they might want to change that, there's a book called Learned Optimism. Um, there's lots of uh, research about how to change that thinking into something that is more optimistic. Um, but yes, you, you will get overwhelmed. You will feel um, like your life is chaotic and um, just meaningless if, if you're thinking that you'll never be able to change your situation and it's all your fault. What are, I mean, what are some ways to build up, you know, personal resilience to, to these like outside factors so people aren't taking these problems and absorbing them and they're more like just kind of. Well, you know, and, th and that's a, that's a huge psychological uh, research area too is resilience and what makes us resilient and we are fascinatingly resilient if, if we focus on our strengths and what we're good at versus what we're not good at and we'll never maybe be good at. We can only, you know, you could practice all day maybe and just be a mediocre tennis player. But what are you good at and, and what is uniquely you? And that will help you towards your resilience. In working with trauma, there's something called post-traumatic growth now. And that is not to minimize whatever happened to someone. Uh, trauma is, can be horrific. Uh, but it is to point to the fact that, yes, we are mostly resilient and we can heal and we can become uh, a better version of ourselves. So there's a whole uh, body of research now on post-traumatic growth and the components that people are saying, like, had this trauma not happened to me, I would not have maybe had some opened up my life to new things that I would have never tried. I maybe would not have realized how strong I was uh, or that I've become a more compassionate person. Uh, but I'd also like to see what, uh, Ping, what you would say about your resilience. I would say because I realize I have those problems when, even though recently I still think when um trying to find a job after I graduate, I still feel like stressed out. Sometimes say like, what's wrong with me? There's nothing in my life is stable. Can I f make something happen? Like nothing, I just feel like worthless about myself. But because I started realizing I have this um, perfectionism going on and then I, I, would, I would think, okay, let's calm down now, you just, there's something going on. You can dissolve this, you can solve it, you can get through it. It's not like like all failure, you failed at everything in your life. Just like, I can think that way now, and then to be feel like stable and grounded, and then try to figure out what to do next. Like I can calm down because of the awareness, I think. So I think a lot of people, they don't even know they have this problem. That's the problem. Like they don't even know, oh, 
you know, you want to be perfect, you always feel stressed. That's something going on with you. Is there's a name? There's a, also a way to get out of that. Just a lot of people they don't realize. So I think that's a, also another big problem. And so, what was that growth point for you, where where you started to pick up and like change new things about your lifestyle and um, work on kind of growing past past perfectionism and this depression that came about by it? I think when I read something about this, like how you how you calm yourself down, you see these people have like trauma. And then I can find that on myself. And then they also talk about how to calm down yourself and then um, just relax. And then I, can, I, I learn from there and then I try practice on myself and that really helped me. Um, so do you, would you have tips for, for college students that are currently wondering, you know, maybe I'm depressed? Um, Unlike finding out if they are and also things to do if they're not, maybe like, of course, they should seek help uh, if they feel like they've been depressed. But if, if they're not quite ready to do that yet, what are some other tips and like lifestyle practices that people can kind of instill in themselves? And I think, you know, Ping, you put that very well about, you know, how your awareness was key to acknowledging what was going on. So if once someone is aware that, that something's not quite right in their life, and, and we're talking about depression and maybe feeling hopeless, um, by all means, please come to the counseling center or talk to, or you say when, if they're not ready, you know, share it with a friend. Um, we know that if you socially isolate when you're feeling depressed, that that aggravates the situation. Uh, if you could just share with someone close to you, um, if you, you know, um, have been not going out and being around people, it's, it's good to get out of your mind and, and be with others. There are books like The Learned Optimism, you know, spend some time in the bookstore searching out the area that speaks to you, get moving, do something physical. There's lots of things that a person can do to, you know, go to the next step. Here again, I've had clients that even exercise would be, though, a perfectionistic skill, that they had to measure everything they were doing. And it was always like, got to get better, got to get better. So until the mindset is different, they might do something that could be relaxing, but it won't be because they're competing with themselves and others. Yeah, I've been there. Uh -huh. I, for a long time, exercise to me was not something I enjoyed I did it because I felt like I needed to be you know skinnier or yeah. stronger I could definitely see where things that could be construed as fun can can become a chore after a while mm -hmm. and something that that you almost want to alienate yourself from more and, and you know exercise can be such the natural mood lifter and that's you know but here again to to let it be enjoyable for you um but I guess while we're talking about it, um, if, if someone is feeling hopeless and possibly suicidal, um, it's real important to reach out to someone. Um, you know, everything is confidential at the counseling center. Uh, if It's our job to identify people that are at risk. And the best antidote is to form that relationship where the healing can occur. 
and you know there's all sorts of ways to help keep people safe and mostly um, just want to decrease any kind of apprehension about getting some help. There's just a lot of resources if the person is open to discovering those. I would say also like people um, like if you already know you know these like um, duck syndrome or like you know all these psychology problems I think um, if you see people around you like for example me I would I already have to my brother I talk to him like ask him do you have somebody talk to you uh, you really trust you can tell them how you feel and then he said no I, I just told him you can talk to me we can talk about it also my friends so I think people if you already know this you can also if you find someone may have these problems you can be open to them and then try to help them no I, I just think that's wonderful because when you see um, the change in, in a person, you know, when, when any of us change and then we want to pass it on, you know, that's, that's what is really interesting because then you know that you're in another step of your healing when you can help somebody else. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we'll be joined by our next guest, Clea McNeely, to talk about adolescent stress and socialization. to Bedtime Stories. We're here with Clea McNeely from the University of Tennessee Department of Public Health, extending our conversation on growing up and losing your roots to adolescence and pre-adolescence. Clea, one of our most interesting responses we got was from an 11-year-old female, and I think you'll see kind of a neat juxtaposition in her response. It's a list that reads stress, school, preps, worrying, demons, dragons, ghosts, angels, ghouls, skin changers. And it was just really, really neat to me because you see this young person talking about really becoming socialized and developing her identity and stressing just like someone coming of age and even labeling people, you know, preps, jocks, um, and these other types of things that she encounters in school, um, as so many young people do. But it's juxtaposed with this list of monsters from supernatural and fairy tales that she still believes in. And I think Supernatural, the TV show. <laughs> and I think that sums up this transitional age, at least when I was 12 and I was obsessed with Stargate SG-1 as I was with reality. Um, I think it kind of just sums up quite perfectly that you still have this element of like childlikeness, but you also have all of this adult stress just coming in on you. I, I think you've, you've encapsulated it perfectly. And one of the thing that, things that it highlights is how it's absolutely normal for development to be uneven during adolescence. Mm -hmm. So that you can see a bedroom of a girl full of stuffed animals and posters of angels, and then she also may be experimenting sexually or with drugs and having really um, important adult-like thoughts and attitudes as well. And so you can see this juxtaposition in adolescence all the time. And I guess what I would say is that it's absolutely normal and kind of fun. Like with this girl, you can see that, that she runs the gamut. Yeah. 
like half supernatural, half, you know, like normal things you'd expect someone to talk about when they say, how was your day? <laughs> um, I mean, is it a cause of anxiety or any kind of stress, though, to just have these like two separate, you know, realities sort of coming together at this age? I don't think that's the source of most stress mm-hmm. for, for teenagers um, because it's a normal part of development. And it's also normal to, to kind of go forward and then regress a little bit and go forward a little bit and regress a little bit in different areas. So there's all these different areas of adolescent development. There's social-emotional development, there's spiritual development, physical development, cognitive development, and they don't all happen evenly. And in fact, social and emotional development gets really, um, if you look at the brain science, there's huge activation of the reward system from things like taking risks and things like social acceptance, which is why peers become really important. But the frontal cortex hasn't developed to maybe temper some of those impulses a little bit. So you see, that's why you see some of the patterns of adolescence. And I guess what I want to say is it's, it's not problematic. This is exactly what has always happened, and it's absolutely normal and positive. So by impulse control, you mean kind of more like risk-taking behaviors? Right, right. So that they've done um, some really interesting experiments so that when they, when they do like a video game driving for for teens versus college students versus adults. And they've shown that when when teens are doing the driving, that the limbic system of their brain, which is the emotion center, lights up more when they're doing risky moves than it does for the adults. And at the same time, the prefrontal cortex, which isn't as fully developed, doesn't light up on the MRI to control that risk-taking behavior. So teens, are, their brains literally work differently than adults? Absolutely. Their brains literally work differently than adults. They are still um, developing um, all adult functions in the brain. And does this extend to all of the, the brain's functions, or is it more just towards like emotional and like personality-type things, or do you see it when it comes into sleep and memory and other functions of the brain? Well, the brain science is still pretty new, um, but it does extend to other areas as well. So, for example, let's take sleep. Adolescents, sleep patterns shift, and every family knows this, right? (laughs) That when they're little kids, they're up at the crack of dawn, but when they're adolescents, they, they naturally stay up later, and then they naturally sleep in later. So it's not so much um, just because there's stuff on TV or they want to be talking to friends. Like, they, they stay up because their rhythm changes. Yeah, absolutely. Their rhythm actually changes, and that's why they can sleep until 1 in the afternoon and stay up till 1 in the morning. And it's not a sign of moral failing. It's a natural part of development. Now, it doesn't mean that they can do that. We have a social system that requires them to get up and go to school. So you have to really support teens in getting to bed on time by taking some of the electronic uh, fun and games out of their room mm-hmm. um, and trying to regulate bedtime a little better. But it is a natural thing. It's not a, a acting out thing or a moral failing or anything like that that teens' uh, sleep patterns shift. So talking about school, when we were looking at some of our responses, um, 
we specifically related to sports and extracurricular activities at school, it was really interesting to see more negative responses regarding the activities we perceive as fun for teens than than just for school and education. You know, you'd expect them to be like, oh, I hate um, these tests and things like that. And instead they're saying they're really, really stressed out about, you know, volleyball tryouts, about, you know, making certain teams or staying on certain teams and like how late practice goes and things. Also extracurricular activities like, um, I mean, just hanging out with their, their friend groups. They'll be like, is everyone hanging out without me? You know, the eternal question. It was kind of odd to see that these things that you would think make up the the happier parts of teenage life um, are are these causes of unnecessary stress? Yeah, uh, it's not surprising. So let's take extracurricular activities first. Um, first, we see a really big dichotomy in our culture today. We have a whole lot of kids who are overprogrammed, right? And they're using curricular activities. They need them to get into college. They need them to be markers of their own success. Then we have a whole bunch of kids who don't have enough activities in their life, don't have enough positive experiences. So you kind of have to look at those two groups differently. But let's look at the overprogrammed kids first. I mean, the meaning of extracurricular activities has really changed. They have become markers of success. Instead just, of just hobbies. Just as academics have. They've always been, to a certain extent, some extracurricular activities like football and cheerleading and gymnastics have been status symbols, right, and have garnered kids' popularity and status, and that's been important. But now you hear kids talking about them, I need to be, this is going to look really good on my resume, <laughs> right? That's what they say. This is going to look really good on my resume, and they figured out they have these four or six or eight different extracurricular activities that show leadership skills, and they need to be the leader of the team, and... And so the meaning of extracurricular activities has really changed. It's been reconceptualized as necessary elements of development and markers of success, and that academic performance is not sufficient. Um, just the way for college students, it's not just good enough to be uh, work in the restaurant and get good grades. You now need internships and work experience, and I mean it's the same yeah. thing at a at a higher level, right? So naturally, these things are going to take on as they take on that kind of meaning, and as kids are trying to fit more and more of them in, and as they're needing to show just not that they, you know, are participating, but they're excelling. These become really stressful activities. And we can really take the fun out of them for kids. Um, then you have the other kids who, um, for whom extracurricular, some extracurricular activities could be really positive developmentally um, because they do offer opportunities for skill building and social relationships and social emotional development in particular that academics don't necessarily offer. So they're just not, they're not a, bad thing at all. They're really important. They're really good. Kids do enjoy them. Um, kids do like being in them. But I think we need to be careful about the meaning we assign to these activities. And there aren't that many for high-achieving families with high-achieving kids. There aren't that many activities left that are just plain fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that.
Um, I do remember in, in high school, I would do things just to make my, you know, resume coming out of high school. And now as an adult, when I look back on that, not that those things weren't important in my life at the time, but I don't list things that I did in high school. I list that I went and then I graduated. But um, the things that I felt were so important now just kind of like, I mean, it's just part of growing up. They just seem like vapor, you know. Right. And hindsight is always a different perspective, right? <laughs> but in the time, and, and kids are also receiving those messages. Mm-hmm. They're see, receiving those messages from college recruiters. They're receiving those messages from parents. They're receiving those messages from teachers and guidance counselors and from each other. So there's a bit of an arms race in terms of um, performance, holistic kind of performance. And that's among these you know, over-programmed, high-achieving families like I say, there's a tremendous need for structured developmental activities for kids that are um, more at the other disadvantaged end of the spectrum. So you were talking a little bit about how extracurricular activities can, can help students achieve popularity and things like that. How important is you know, popularity or feeling that everyone likes you at that age? It really changes over developmentally so for early teens popularity is much more important than for say 17 to 19 year olds Mm -hmm. who are more confident in their own individual self-concept who have more prefrontal cortex developed and can make their own decisions a little more easily but you get this kind of funny paradox in especially in the early teen years and I'm sure this will sound familiar both to teenagers listening to this and to older people, that at the same time, teens want to be totally individuals, mm-hmm. want to be their own person, and at the same time, they're desperate to belong and will do almost anything to belong, mm-hmm. right? And that's absolutely normal. Um, again, the brain research is showing that the feeling of social acceptance is very powerful for teens. It's like something really fun that adults like, like eating ice cream or going to a concert. I mean, it has this real, the social reward center really lights up in the brain when kids feel socially accepted or are socially accepted. And in contrast, you didn't ask about this, but when they're rejected, mm-hmm. that's, that's a very negative experience for teens. So teens work pretty hard to be socially accepted. And so they are um, vulnerable to making choices that they think will get them socially accepted. Um, So popularity is pretty important. And um, and it's, I've yet to find a a kid who does not want to be popular. At least to some extent. I, I remember I used to say I didn't, but um, it was one of those things where I, I still remember I went to Carnes for a little while before I got transferred to another school, but I still remember going out, getting off the bus in the morning, and it was almost like uh, your stereotypical high school movie. Like everyone, when they were on the bus, it would be kind of like when you see in cartoons, you know, there's one goth kid in the whole school, or there's one kid who only wears woodland camouflage in the whole school. And then you get off the bus at the commons as people are arriving um, that morning, and you'll have a whole section over here of people dressed in like punk rock and black clothes and things like that. And then a whole section of people dressed a certain way. And so they go from like looking kind of, you know, like they stand out in smaller sections of people. And then this is like their circle where 
they're literally creating this acceptance by by the way they you know appear unique <laughs> exactly that's a perfect perfect example and also like you said you know these groups get named in high school Mm -hmm. they, the cliques actually have names, and mm -hmm. it can vary from high school to high school, but you often have the goss or the preps or the jocks or whatever yeah. it's called in that high school. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I guess there's advantages and disadvantages to popularity then. Um, so you were talking about uh, people will do more things to kind of seek acceptance um, as far as peer pressure goes and things like that. So is, is it risky? That's a great question. It's hard work to stay popular, mm -hmm. right? Kids who are popular tend to work really hard at it. And one of the things that um, is a fairly recent discovery and was kind of surprising is that popular kids actually in some ways are more susceptible to peer influence than not popular kids because they're working to do those high-status behaviors that are going to keep them popular. Mm -hmm. And so depending on what the norm is in the school, those high status behaviors are gonna differ, but they almost always involve risk taking. Mm -hmm. So what you see is that the popular kids are usually more likely, not, not by a tremendous amount, but are somewhat more likely to be engaging in some risky behaviors like experimenting with marijuana and alcohol and um, cigarettes and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I think isn't talked about enough, when you think of peer pressure, you think of people are always telling their kids, you know, resist peer pressure, resist peer pressure. But I feel like there's this paradox that people aren't telling, you know, don't peer pressure people, don't m encourage risk-taking behaviors. Is that is that just something that kind of has to do with, like, our culture and the way we talk about it? Or are we just having a hard time defining and labeling what peer pressure is? Or is it, is it a deeper issue than that? I think that a lot of adults, even though we all went through adolescence, mm -hmm. we have kind of a simplistic understanding of peer pressure. Like, like the, the visual of peer pressure is one kid holding a cigarette saying to another kid, come on, don't be a, don't be a doofus, have a, have a smoke. You mm -hmm. know, It's like literally pressuring another child or another adolescent to do something but it hardly ever shows up in that way exactly. i can't think of one time that i did something stupid that someone was like if you don't do it you're not cool like I, it was a weirder dynamic it was everyone was having fun and i wanted to be part of that fun and that that's then i would do <laughs> things <laughs> exactly and that it's much more subtle and i'm not even sure that peer pressure is the right word mm -hmm. because it's way more subtle than some kind of overt pressure to do something. It comes from a desire to fit in, and it comes from perceptions of what's going to help them fit in, and what's normal. And I remember, I, I personally uh, have never been able to drink beer, but I remember standing at those high school parties with my cup of beer pretending to drink, because <laughs> I wanted to fit in. Right? Yeah. And if I had liked beer, who knows, I probably would have drunk, but I can't stand beer, so, <laughs> so I didn't. But um, no one was putting a glass of beer in my hand, but I wanted to belong because my, now I understand that my brain was, was sending me reward single signals for, for fitting in. So I think when we think about peer pressure and we, then you think about, well, who's setting these norms, 
right, that kids are wanting to fit in into. And um, we're not really clear yet on the complex processes. We know that there's trendsetters, especially for like fashion, that's really been studied. Mm -hmm. But in terms of behavioral norms, we're not really clear on how those get established, say in a school or in a after school group or in a church group or whatever. We don't have a good idea of it. So this whole peer pressure is way more complex than it's than the term implies. Yeah. It seems yeah. like it's both parts having trouble labeling it and that you know it's more of like a a herd culture kind of thing and also it seems like it runs a little deeper than we think it does too and i also want to say is that we always focus on the negative aspects of peer pressure mm -hmm. or peer influence was a is a term i prefer is peer influence if you if you look at the research there's all kinds of positive aspects of peer influence mm -hmm. and they happen in a couple different ways first kids are saying I don't have sex because my friends would disapprove, right? So it's also, if the norm is away from risky behavior, that's going to be the direction of the peer influence, right? Um, so that's, that's, it's positive in that way too. But also, kids need, during adolescence is when young people start, it's their task to become independent. It's their task to figure out how do I have intimate, and I don't mean physically intimate, I mean emotionally intimate, authentic, real relationships with other people outside my family. Mm -hmm. And when kids are in peer groups, they're practicing that. Mm -hmm. They're practicing how to resolve conflict. They're practicing how to become friends. They're practicing um, emotional intimacy, both with same gender and opposite gender friendships and romantic relationships. Um, and one of the really, this is a bit of an aside, but one of the really interesting things, another kind of mis common myth, is that boys don't value emotional intimacy, and they absolutely do, both in romantic relationships and in friendship relationships. So both boys and girls value this, um, and this is a, a really important function that peers serve. And yet, at the same time, I, any group of young people will tell you if you ask them, excuse me, <clears throat> if you ask them directly, they will tell you that the most important people in their lives are adults, unless an adult is noticeably missing from their life. The most important people they want in their lives are adults. So we should never, as adults, minimize the importance of our role. Um, and that's hard because teens <clears throat> teens will um you know you're in front of a room of american teens and they give you that bored blank stare mm -hmm. and then you try to engage with them and they just look at you like oh god she's so out of date right and, and that's, that's the best case scenario right worst case scenario <laughs> they're just openly rude <laughs> right and then if someone else came in and talked to them afterwards mm -hmm. they might say something like oh my God, she was so cool. I loved what she was saying. Mm -hmm. But developmentally, they're not going to give you the warm, fuzzy feedback that young children give <laughs> you, and they're not going to give you the eye contact and nodding heads and affirmative behaviors that adults have learned to give you. They're in that mm -hmm. in-between phase. And is that um, just learning to 
to work with those social cues or do you think that that's part of like a front kind of to put up or that's a great I actually don't know the answer to that because Mm -hmm. that is not that is a bit culturally specific Mm -hmm. like adolescents from other cultures will not give you that what we might call attitude Mm -hmm. right They'll, they'll be more what we would call respectful and attentive so to a certain extent I think it's cultural, mm-hmm. um, but at the same time, adolescents do not perceive and communicate emotions in the same way. So, and this is another developmental difference. So when you are um, feeling an emotion and indicating an emotion with your face and your body language, Teens may not accurately perceive that. So if you are tired and crabby, they may perceive that you're mad at them. So what, what do you think of when you hear the term teen angst? Um, Is it accurate? Is it just something that, you know, we've, we've made like specific to teens and, you know, their hormonal issues and all these kind of things, or is it broad brush? Do you, do you think that it's something that is accurately attributed, I guess, to teenagers? No, (laughs) I would say not. I think it's part of, again, the mythology of teenagers. We have a very, in this culture, um, and I, I study teenagers, I work with teenagers Mm -hmm. when I tell people that my area is adolescence and I work with adolescents, a very normal reaction among adults is to get an eye roll and say, boy, do you have a hard job, right? So we have this very negative cultural perception of of young people, Mm -hmm. and I want that to change. Mm -hmm. And what I want to communicate is that it's a very developmentally exciting period. There's so much going on. They get 50% of their body weight. They get 50% um, of actual growth in their brain. Mm-hmm. They get both growth in, the, in their brain and as, also well, as well as trimming of synapses so their brains are more efficient. Um, they become able to sexually reproduce. They sexually develop. They've got a lot going on. We, as adults in this society, have portrayed that as angst. We have negatively stereotyped that. And wouldn't it be a wonderful shift if we looked at this as this incredibly exciting time for young people when they're developing so much and, how, and think about rather than how can we control it and not be threatened by it, how can we support it and develop it? And there's this great bumper sticker phrase that I love, um, developed by Karen Pittman. And it goes, young people are resources to be developed, not problems to be solved. That's very poignant. So how can adults then um, increase their role in encouraging that development and not um, just kind of sweeping it under the rug? There are what we call the big three. So, but before I get to those, what I want to say, I think a lot of it is just understanding that what's going on during adolescence is normal. Mm -hmm. And it's not always fun. 
as a parent, you get the talking back, you get the eye rolling, you get the clear messages that I don't want to be with you. And there's this great Mark Twain phrase, or that I'll paraphrase, where he said, you know, when I was 18, I realized my dad was so stupid. And by the time I was 21, I realized he had learned a lot in three years. <laughs> right? So there is that. But that's normal. That's mm. normal. And if we cannot take that personally, and we can understand that we are still really, as adults, essential in young people's lives, um, I think that will go a long ways towards it. And... Then getting back to the big three, three big supports that young people need that really help them develop. The first is a caring, supportive relationship with as many adults as possible. So teens, teens develop everywhere. They don't just develop at school. They don't just develop at home. They don't just develop in their spiritual community. They're always developing. So the more arenas in which you can have uh, caring, supportive adults, the better. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one thing. The other thing is they, they need behavioral regulation. They need clear expectations about what behaviors are acceptable, what behaviors are not acceptable, and what are clear and fair and negotiated consequences for when that doesn't happen. And that needs to change developmentally. Just like you would expect something different of a two-year-old than a six-year-old, you're going to expect something different of an 11-year-old from a 15-year-old, right, or a 19-year-old. Mm -hmm. And then the third, and this is really, really important, is something that we call, it's got this big fancy name called psychological autonomy. But that basically means really respecting young people's thoughts, ideas, desires, interests, and fostering those, mm -hmm. not invading those, not diminishing those, in any way, but to be supportive of that kind of um, that kind of independent development, and then they need opportunities for skill building to practice all of these things. Um, and we in this society have, like we we began our conversation, have you know turned that into school and extracurricular activities, and we've created a lot of stress around it. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe we're not doing it in the absolute best way we could, but. But those opportunities are really important for young people. Do you think most adults are, are good at being in this role um, for, for younger people? I think a lot of adults are very good at it. Um, and, but I think it's also important to remember that we're all works in progress. Mm -hmm. That the social and emotional development that we want of young people we have not always mastered ourselves as adults. And so one of the best ways we can support young people is to think about how we're serving as role models. Because children and young people are much more attuned to what we do than to what we say. Mm -hmm. So one of the best ways we can support young people is to focus on our own development. And I just encourage uh, the young people out there to celebrate being a young person, the time will pass, and so celebrate being a young person now, explore, experiment, turn to adults for support. If you don't uh, feel like you have someone in your life right now who is supporting you in the way you want, go find somebody. Mm -hmm. uh, because there's a lot of great adults out there that can help you. And if you're an adult, understanding 
the excitement and the search for competence that young people are going through and think about how we can support that, both through working on ourselves and creating safe spaces with care, clear expectations, and freedom of thought for young people. Thank you so much. If you'd like to hear more about this topic from Clea, she's actually authored a book called The Teen Years Explained. If you look it up online, again, that's The Teen Years Explained by Clea McNeely and Jane Blanchard. It's available as a downloadable PDF for free. Thank you for joining us. Well, I hope you all enjoyed your last bedtime story with me. I had a lot of fun exploring what keeps us up at night together. Be sure to keep up with WUOT to find out what the next Tin Talk season is going to be so you can keep up with us as we seek to answer more of your questions. And as always, you can find out more information about the 10 Words Project on our website, wuot.org, or you can follow us on Twitter at 10 Words with two N's and the same on Instagram. And we'll be publishing your responses to our current question uh, every day. Thanks a bunch to Ping Wu, Gina Austin, and Clea McNeely for joining us on the show this evening. And as always, a big thanks to everyone on the 10 Words team and all the good people over at the University of Tennessee College of Social Work. The music for Bedtime Stories is by Todd Steed and the Sons of Fear. And if you like it, you can hear a whole lot more of it on Bandcamp. Sleep tight, Knoxville.